Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, find verses 22 to chapter 4 and verse 1. We'll, today we'll officially finish Colossians chapter 3. Started last October, so you've... <laughs> it was longer than I expected, but we had a few breaks in there, so... Well, now that you're comfortable, we're going to get back into work, a topic we've been introducing for five weeks, needs no introduction. So stand with me and read again Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us today to look back on these words and to feel the truth freshly in our hearts and lives, to see how these labors you have put before us really are for our good and for your glory, to see the truth and the instruction you give to those of to all of us who work, but especially today to those who manage or oversee or employ. Help us, Father, not to view this as instruction for nine to five on Monday, but all of life. Help us to feel the joy and the wonder of a coming day when all that we do will be evaluated by our Savior. Help us to fear that day, if we should. Father, teach our hearts today how to live for your glory. Give us humility. Give us your wisdom. Help us to apply. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 4, 1 is the grace of God's instruction to us in our toil and labor that we call work. We've slowed down a bit to try to squeeze out of this text all we can to help us with this massive amount of life we call work. And in that work, in that grind, I trust you've seen how God allows us to bring Him eternal glory. It's more than just a temporary thing that we do. It's an opportunity to make much of Him for eternity. And how has Paul done that? Well, really, Paul has helped us by explaining our earthly calling, by providing our heavenly motivation, and we'll conclude today by bringing our eschatological comfort. Paul says that workers should work hard no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the job is. Why? We looked at that last week, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 24 is our heavenly motivation. 
And it provides an anchored confidence. Where does it come from? Where does our motivation, where does our treasure, where does our reward come from? It comes from knowing Christ, our anchored confidence. And second, we have a future treasure. So if this life is not full of treasure chests filled with gold and pearls and jewels, then that's okay because Paul says future is where treasure comes. And then at the end of verse 24, we find our eternal ambition. Paul says all your work, no matter how important or unimportant, no matter how dignified or undignified, no matter what you do, how do we know that we have opportunity to bring glory to God in the grind of daily life? Because in verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. So understand, it's not what we do. It's who we do it for. It's not what we do. It's who we do it for. Who's Paul talking to? People with high and mighty impressive jobs? No. And he says that doesn't matter. He says what matters is who you do it for. That's why this idea that we are servants or even slaves of Christ does not condemn us to lives that lack dignity, but it lifts us into the beauty of a life that matters eternally because we have an opportunity to serve the actual Lord of heaven and earth, Christ. So whether you weld the same two pieces of metal together day after day or you chart the course of a company with 50 or 500 employees, it doesn't matter. You serve the Lord Christ. Whether you babysit convicts in jail or you babysit your own babies at home, you serve the Lord Christ. From painter to president, cook to cop, you serve the Lord Christ. There's no job that can steal the dignity of a Christian because we are servants of Christ. And there's no job, I think we all should hear this, there's no job that can add to the dignity and glory of your life because you serve the Lord Christ. There's nothing this world can offer me to produce in me something better than what I know that God has done for me in Christ. He's saved me. He's purchased me out of sin and death. He's made me his son. He's made me his heir. Do I need to worry about my job title? We shouldn't. And we should be able to live for the glory of God that he brings to himself through our daily labor. And yet there are times when we can't. There are times when injustice feels like too much. There are times when circumstances feel like they're winning. There are times when we've worked hard, but because we don't worship the boss and instead we worship Christ, we get skipped for the promotion. There are times when because we serve Christ and we can't wear the rainbow pin, we get comprehensively pushed out of any influence and discarded, even though we still work someplace where they act like we're not even there. There are times when because we won't compromise the systems of this world that hated our king hate us and that there are times where the powers of this world that killed our king are seeking to destroy us. And we think we serve the Lord Christ, but sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. Paul says, yeah, I got you. I understand. What can we do? Where can we turn? Well, Paul gives us an eschatological motivation in verse 25 in chapter 4, verse 1. From our earthly calling to work for the Lord to our heavenly motivation to work for the Lord, it should be all we need but 
it's not always all we need. So Paul gives us comfort in the present with truth from the future because he knows we need more. Maybe your work life is hard. Maybe your work life is struggle. Or maybe you're one of those rare people that hit a glitch in the matrix and everything works out for you and you love everything and it works amazing and good for you, but don't talk to the rest of us. But he puts us in front of us a reminder of what comes next. And he gives us, those of us living for Christ, he gives us an eschatological comfort. He says, look, there's something that's good for you that's coming in the end. A comfort that comes from the end times. But if you're living for yourself, it's not a comfort. It's a threat. Living for Christ, man, this is good. Living for self, look out. In verse 25, we find ourselves pivoting on a hinge uh, from instruction to the bondservants to structure instruction to the masters. But I think in, in Paul's absolutely masterful way, he's talking to everybody. This is applicable for both slave and master, verse 25, 4. So Paul's going to give us a reason. He says, look, all this stuff, why? Because, or for, a servant. Why work hard and serve the Lord even in the midst of difficulty? Uh, as an employee, why have integrity? When you know you could steal and nobody would know, why have integrity? Why not as a business owner? Pay the least you possibly can and save the money to spend it wisely or to give to the church. Why? Because, for, Paul gives you the reason. He's writing to ensure our obedience. He's reminding us of what's coming to help us persevere in the moment, to live righteously now. He says, for the wrongdoer, this is just generic speak for somebody who's broken a law. It doesn't matter if it's an earthly law, a heavenly law, or an HOA law. The wrongdoer, you don't have to be convicted. It's just you, you did the wrong thing. It's not a determination of, of legal status. It's just a reality, and you know this is true of you or not. Nobody deserves to be excluded from the group, but in the context, Paul's addressing these people in the slave-master relationship. Either the slave who's acted dishonestly, as you see in the book or the letter to Philemon, or the master who treats his slaves as those with less than the dignity of God that he's created them with. Wrongdoer is a term that's employed by Paul to encompass the widest swath of moral mishaps. He's not talking about merely abuse, not talking just about murder. He, he's, he's talking about everything from white lies to missing office products, especially a pack of five Pilot G2 ultra-fine pens. You know who you are. But middle of verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. This is really an ancient forefather uh, to our common saying that goes something like this, you're going to get what's coming to you. Paul says that to all of us. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about justice. He's talking about judgment. You may not see it on the horizon, but just like you can trust that the sun comes up every day, you can trust that judgment's going to come down on your sins. So maybe you're a business owner and someone stole money from you and they got away with it and you couldn't really prove it and they spent it before you found it and so it's just gone and it feels like an injustice. Paul says, there'll be a day they're going to get what's coming to them. Maybe your boss lied to you and overpromised and underdelivered, and, and then when confronted, kind of weaseled their way out of it. Paul says, it's okay. The Lord is going to deal with it. They're going to get what's coming to them. Maybe you were fired and it was someone else's fault. 
Maybe you're taken advantage of financially or physically. You were abused, you were hated, you were mocked, you were treated unjustly and unfairly. Maybe your schedule was manipulated by your manager and all of a sudden you're working all the worst shifts. Paul says, yo, this is okay because they're gonna get what's coming to them. Trust the Lord. Judgment is coming. It's a threat to those who aren't following Christ. It's a comfort to those who are following Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I think it's funny. Sometimes people use the term we when we don't mean we. They mean you. But Paul meant we. We are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Nobody is excluded. For those living for Christ, what an amazing and glorious day that will be. For those living for self, you're going to get what's coming to you. You see, Paul says wrongs will be accounted for. Each will receive what is due for what he has done, good or evil. You, you say, but they got away with it at work. They, they did this to me and it wasn't right. Paul says, okay, but nobody gets away with anything ever, forever. Either you're saved and Christ died for your sins so that your punishment could be satisfied and you be forgiven, or you will pay for your sins on that day, forever. Because it's coming. Paul says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. So work hard today. Don't, don't worry about the difficulty that's come to you because of the wrongs of other people. Because Jesus says, someday I got that. But today you, you live for me. You work for me, knowing that in the future I'll set everything Right. It's okay to struggle at work, for others to hate you because you love Christ. It's okay for you to be wronged at work. You've not been promised an easy work life. Why? Because the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And then Paul adds, and there is no partiality. So first there's a future justice, and then Paul clarifies it just to remind us there is no partiality. This, this is an impartial justice. Last phrase of verse 25, there's no partiality. Maybe you think, yeah, but... Paul doesn't know my boss. This dude's, he's a piece of work, sneaky, shady, manipulative. Paul says, doesn't matter. You say, but you don't know how connected my boss is. Paul says, there's no partiality. Eternal justice will not be thwarted by political favors, special protection, fancy connections, prejudice, or anything else. God is no respecter of persons. He created people. You think you're special? Maybe you have your employees kind of buffaloed and convinced that they have to serve you at all your whims. You seek to pay your employees as little as possible for them to survive. God's not impressed, but he does see it. And just because he hasn't acted in judgment yet doesn't mean he won't act in judgment in the future. Judgment is coming. Paul promises it to you. God doesn't play favorites. There is no heritage, no family tree, no citizenship, no tax bracket, no popularity, no political party that will take away his judgment. It's coming. The word Paul uses here, it finds its root in a Hebrew idiom, to receive the face. God does not receive the face. What does that mean? It means he doesn't look on appearances. 
He's not impressed with your fancy suit or your big truck. He's looking at your heart. He's not impressed with job titles. He's looking at your heart. It doesn't matter if you're rich and powerful or poor and weak. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or yellow or brown. It doesn't matter if you're Greek or Jew. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality. You break the law of God to love, your, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, then, then what is coming for you? God's judgment. You, no matter who you are, will be paid back for what you've done. Unless Jesus already took the payment on your behalf. Because there's no partiality with God. Imagine this comfort for those throughout the ages who followed Christ seeking to live peaceful and quiet lives but were attacked and harassed and helpless to defend themselves from the rich and the powerful. Paul says justice is coming. On earth you may not see it. On earth you can bribe your way out of justice. You can hire a good attorney and get off. Maybe your daddy's somebody important. But Paul says, you know what? There's only one long line on the, way to, on the path to judgment. And we're all in it. And we're all going to get judged. But when you get there, there will be one of two options. Either Jesus says, I took all the judgment, or you get to take all the judgment forever. In this life, when we're offended, abused, wronged, and we feel like we have to fix the issue, we don't. Because we can't. But God says he will. Jesus promises it to us. And nobody will get off on a technicality. Every deed will see justice. That's an eschatological comfort for those of us who are in Christ. So we don't have to worry about it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, what is it? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. None. We have no condemnation. But if we're living for ourselves, what do we have? That's all we have, condemnation. Jesus promised judgment to us. John chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. But he continues this promise in verse 27. He says that he has authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's coming. You can't hide behind a resume. You can't hide behind a job title. You can't find protection in your earthly power. When Jesus says it's judgment day, if his judgment hasn't been taken out on himself and God's wrath poured out on him, his judgment will be taken out on you. There's no partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what power you have now. In the future, we'll all be the same, standing before him, either because we have his mercy or begging for it and not receiving it. Jesus will either be your judge or your savior. There's no partiality. The third eschatological comfort is a reminder that in the present, we live with divine ethics, or we should. Because of what we know is coming, we are called, particularly those of us in positions of influence, power, importance over other people, we're called to live divine ethics. So after Paul kind of hopefully scares us a little bit with this future judgment that's coming and causes us to check our hearts to recognize are we in Christ or not, then he helps us see that we need to live now with these divine ethics. Paul commands masters, those who his society viewed as the owners of human property, 
to treat their slaves justly and fairly. I hope that doesn't sit well. I hope that doesn't feel comfortable talking about mankind being owned. Slavery is always a product of man's fallenness and unrighteousness. And yes, there's regulations for slavery and Mosaic law, just like there's regulations for divorce. The curse and its claws have ripped deep into the flesh of society, and slavery is simply one symptom of the curse. Paul's apparent lack of condemnation of slavery shouldn't be viewed as a promotion of slavery. Just like Paul calls on Christians to submit to the ugly evil of Nero's government, slaves were to obey their masters, to live before their masters in a godly way, knowing and trusting and believing that their ultimate master is Christ the Lord and his kingdom rules forever. You know, I think for all of us, we have to grapple with the reality that our earthly identities all expire. They're all gone someday. You ever had a coupon code on an app that expired? It drives me nuts. By the time I find that I have something free, then I don't get there in time to get it. And I feel like they kind of stole it from me, even though they gave it to me. You know, I had 825 points that Chipotle took away because I hadn't gone for six months. 825. I think it all would get me a bag of chips, but they took it. I don't like that kind of stuff. Expiration. It expired. Who you are is going to expire. When you're in heaven, they won't walk up to you like, oh, you managed a company of 12 people. Wow. It expires. For the slave, they would have been thrilled. For the master, Paul kind of gave him a poke. Hey, you know this is not going to last forever. You have a master in heaven. Can you imagine Paul in the context and the culture writing this? Doug Moo translated it literally like this. Masters, provide justice and fairness to your slaves. That wasn't normal. That was practically anti-Roman Empire talk. Roman Empire was built on slavery. Not racially driven slavery, but war driven. Why would they conquer someplace? To take their best, take them back, make them work for them. But Paul, he wasn't scared of anybody powerful in their position or their opinion. He says, look, Masters, this is what you must do. You provide for your people justice and fairness. I think that's pretty interesting. I don't think people, I know people didn't talk like this in Paul's day. Paul says, look, these are earthly, vulnerable bondservants in your care that you are seemingly acting unaccountable for. The government doesn't necessarily care what you do as long as you don't cause an uprising. But Paul says, look, somebody is watching you. He's not an earthly power. He's a perfect, heavenly, divine king. So treat them and provide for them what nobody gave to them. Justice and fairness. He says, you owe this to your slaves. The idea is to actively provide justice and fairness. These are the standing orders from God for masters. 
And again, if you argue from the greater to the lesser, if this is what's true of masters, then this has to be what's true of employers. If you're to be active in regularly, consistent, and habitually providing fairness and justice to your employees, how do you do it? The general nature of your relationship is for you as an employer to provide for employees these things. It's to compose your relationship on their behalf. Justice and fairness. I appreciate Paul's ambiguity in verse 1. To treat somebody justly. What is that? It's hard to define, but it's easy to see when you're not. It's a broad term that seemingly fits every situation. Fair, fairness or fairly. How do you treat somebody fairly? Kids know when you're not being fair. They tell you. In everything, you should be godly towards your employees. I think we can basically derive from this. Divine ethics are the only ethics you can have as a business owner who claims Christ, as a manager who claims Christ. But what does that look like? Well, Paul was pretty broad, so I feel comfortable being broad as well. First, if you're going to live with divine ethics as an employer, as a company owner, as a business owner, then first you need to have integrity. Who's God? One of my favorite descriptions of God, just a piece and a part of who God is. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Who is God? The one who never lies. Who else do you know like that? Yeah. God who never lies. We have to have integrity. There's no justice without integrity. There's no fairness without integrity. There's no justice without truth. There's no fairness without truth. What is integrity? It's just a constant pursuit of fairness and justice and truth. If you're in control, which you are as the employer, you're in control. Doing what you say you will do is a necessity for justice and fairness, a necessity for having integrity. Imagine if you were to advertise for employment like this. We pay poorly and you will be taken advantage of. And we say you'll never work holidays, but what we mean is you'll probably work most of them. And we say there's regular pay raises, but what we mean is every 11 years. Can you imagine seeing an ad like that in the paper? You know, help wanted. Who's going to take that job? Nobody. But too often, what do employers do? That. Oh, we got a great job for you. Great competitive pay. Do you know what that means? It means nothing. <laughs> competitive with who? Homeless people? Yeah, like it's, come on. Have integrity. When you're the boss, you're responsible to keep yourself in check. You've promised these things to your employees. Who's keeping you accountable? Well, in the text, God is. So are you living like this before your employees? You have to keep yourself accountable. Your employees can't force you into justice. They can't force you into fairness. But you hired them claiming that you would treat them well unless you have, you know, an interesting job description. You hired them claiming to treat them well. What should you do? Treat them well. Have integrity. Provide for them justice and fairness. Just because you employ them doesn't mean you can treat them in any way you like. If you hired them to bake cakes, but now you need them to sweep the floors, you should have a conversation with them. You say, look, this is the deal. This is what circumstances have brought. These things are out of my control. This is what I need from you. Work things out. Have integrity. 
Occasionally there's issues a company needs to address. Circumstances are thrust upon you. You can't do what you had hoped to do. Will you have integrity then? Or will you try to like sneak around it and say, well, actually in your contract, what I meant was work towards a resolution. Communication is your friend if you were living godly and telling the truth. If you have integrity, work it out. But if you're being sneaky, you're trying to hide stuff, you won't want to talk about it. You want to just act like, well, that was somebody else's decision. I don't know what you're talking about. If your company's going under and you tell your employees, you know, look, I promised you a raise, but I can't do it. What's wrong with that? That's just saying that you're not perfect. You can, you can have integrity and be a failure. You can also lack integrity and be successful. Which do you want? Integrity. If you promise to raise but can't do it, tell your employees. But don't tell them while you're on a two-month vacation to Europe. Have integrity. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Do what you say. Why? Because your employees can keep you in check? No. They don't need to because you have a master in heaven. Have integrity. He's watching. Just because you write the checks doesn't mean you don't have your own master. Have integrity. You have freedom to exercise integrity in a massive swath of life. So do you. Second, if you're going to live before your employees with divine ethics, then model divine wisdom. How can you provide justice and do the right thing in every situation? Well, you can listen to a cool leadership podcast. Or you could use divine wisdom. What a greater way to help your employees hear of the goodness of God than through you working through situations with them, begging God for help for them and for you. I remember I was working for a Christian employer. He was an amazing man. And there was a point in time where we had a big old problem. And I mean, it was big. I I remember telling Amy, I think I'm going to get fired on Friday. It was a monster problem. And I went in and I said, look, here's the problem. Here's what I did. What would you like to do? <laughs> and you know what he said? That is a big problem. Let's take some time and pray about it. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom. Wow. And that's what we did. That's unbelievable. He's the owner. He could have said, you know what? Somebody else is going to fix that, but not you. But he didn't. Shouldn't our Christian business people be making that a priority in their business? You can fly off the handle. You can yell and scream. You can get upset. You can do what you want because you're the employer. But can you? Not according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. You have a master in heaven. So use his wisdom. Instead of Googling revenue forecasting for the good of your business, remember what Solomon told us. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4, 5, 6, 7. He says that when you're pursuing the Lord and his love and his wisdom, what do you get? You get it. Go to him. Beg for help and bring your employees with you to him. Who's stopping you? Who writes the protocol for your company? If it's yours, do it right. Go to God for wisdom and then obey it. Model divine wisdom. Teach your employees you are not the top of the totem pole. If you think you're the top of the totem pole, be careful. God will remind you you're not. So fourth, 
or third, whatever, I can't count. Third, cultivate godliness. If you're the boss, especially if you're a company owner, you have no excuse to not aim everything that you do at making much of Christ. That means you got to walk the walk before you talk the talk. You can't tell your employees that God has transformed you, changed you, and then act just like them who don't know Christ. You can't say that God has transformed me and then value what they value. You can't say God has made me a new creature and prioritize and and love what they prioritize and love. You have a platform for Christ as an owner, as a big wig manager. Don't shrink from it. Embrace it and use it for the glory of God. One business owner after first service said, I felt like you put us on the tee. I didn't put you on the tee. Paul did. I'm just swinging a bat. So if you employ a bunch of welders just because they're traditionally rotten doesn't mean they can be rotten at your work. Whose job is it to help them? Yours. If you own the company, you set the standards. You employ salespeople, and it's in their best interest to kind of cloud the fine print a little bit. Don't let them. Why would you do that? Why could you let people like that work for you when you claim to live for Christ? Oh, wait, unless you don't claim to live for Christ. Unless it's like a secret. They don't have to worship Christ and work for you. They can't worship Christ apart from the Spirit. But they cannot be allowed to undermine your pursuit of godliness and your reputation as a follower of Christ. So what do you do? You teach and promote and cultivate Godliness. Fourth, consider your stewardships. Stewardships, there's a lot of them. Two main ones we'll look at. God has entrusted to you souls under your employment. He's given you these people, and they're giving you 90,000 hours of their life. That's a big deal. Are you making it matter? If you're a business owner, you have no excuse for employees that have a lame duck existence. If your business doesn't have a godly purpose, then sell it. If your business isn't helping you and allowing you to love the Lord your your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, then get rid of it because you're wasting your time and you're wasting their time. Now, before you send me an email, there are lots of ways many businesses can allow for their owners and employees to love God and love neighbor. Serving others is a wonderful thing. Helping others is a wonderful thing. Selling what people need is a wonderful thing. Pushing people towards a product or a lifestyle they don't need, can't afford, and can harm them, that's not good. Why would you give your life to that? You wouldn't. So why would you start your business doing that? You shouldn't. Your business plan should hold within it opportunities for you to love others. If there are believers that work for you, they should have opportunity to love others. Why would you make it hard for them? I don't know. We tell employees when they go to work, they should make much of Christ. They should evangelize when possible. They should live for Christ before all things. But then owners get a pass to not set their company up to do this. I take Luther's view on 
work. Outside of providing evil products or evil services, I think you can glorify the, the Lord in all these things, all the things you do. We have somewhere around 20 businesses represented at Grace Bible Church. It's awesome. Could be. It's your job to make it. All for Christ. No matter what you do, milkmaid to monk, your heart can be to worship God and love others. Or not. Or to live for your business. Your work life will not fall into worship by default. You have to be strategic. You have to press forward. You have to get rid of the flesh. God has given you a business. What are you doing with it for him? How are you leveraging your business and your authority in your business for his glory? How are you advancing the gospel? Not not generic, squishy, common American Christian sentimentality, but like the gospel. How are you advancing the gospel? How are you promoting Christ? You say, well, my business isn't designed to do that. Okay. What should you do? Change your business. How are you promoting Christ? If you're not, then I have a few options for you. Either you're a chicken or you know that you're not running your business in a way that you want people to know that you follow Christ. Those are neither very good options. Owners, top dog managers, you have a huge responsibility to set the tone of godliness and the direction of Christ-likeness for your business. There's no such thing as a secular business owner that's a Christian. That's an oxymoron. There's no part of your life that Christ doesn't own. How could he not own your business, the biggest thing in your life? Do you need to be wise in certain environments? Absolutely. I understand that. But wisdom doesn't mean, mean that you need to disguise your business to the degree that people can't tell that you're a Christian. That's not wisdom. That's chicken. If you can't be a Christian in the business that you own, then sell it. Make a fat profit off of it. And start a business that you can. We would give the same advice to employees. If you can't be a Christian where you work, work somewhere else. It makes perfect sense. The people who own the company they should set up their company so that they can be a Christian in their company. I'm not sure how many people have gotten saved by reading the verses referenced on the various In-N-Out burger packaging material. I'm not talking about that kind of a thing, making your company Christian. I'm not talking about putting a fish on your business card, though that's not bad. I mean, that keeps you from hiding as a Christian. But do you live like Christ? Do you honor Christ before all things as a company owner? Do you live like Jesus is at work with you? Are you a follower of Christ or are you a company owner first? If you're a company owner before you're a Christian, you have an identity problem that's salvific, not small. You say, well, today's society is very sensitive and people get offended, etc., etc., etc. Okay. You know what Paul would say? chicken. People didn't get offended in Paul's day. They killed you. 
Why would you, on purpose, pour 90,000 hours of your life, or if you're an owner, probably 100,000 hours of your life, into a business or a company that you designed to not promote Christ? You don't need to answer me, but at the end of chapter 4, verse 1, you need to answer him. Are you stewarding your platform for the gospel or the bottom line? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, listen to an ancient business owner. Paul ran tents.com. Uh, if you've never heard of it, it's great. But listen to his passion and his drive and the why of his life, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you can't take that idea to work, then get rid of it. If you're the owner, what are you doing? Who's stopping you? Consider your stewardship. Leverage what God has given you for him. Find a way. You have a master. Live for him. You have a master and it's not your loan. You have a master and it's nowhere here on earth. You have a master in heaven. No matter what your business is, shouldn't you be finding ways to make it about preaching Christ? Preaching reconciliation? Maybe you're company's too big and you're too powerful and too connected with too many people that wouldn't want your business to witness to Christ, then get rid of it. Seriously, what's it doing for you? Keeping you from being obedient to Christ. Instead, be an ambassador for Christ first. Own a business second. If you lose your company because you preach Christ, do you really think you'll regret that in eternity? I don't. Flip the coin over. You just go along to get along, afraid to preach Christ to your employees or on your YouTube channel or on your website or to your clients. What's going to happen? Well, one, they're not going to hear Christ from you. They're lost and dying and going to an eternal hell and you're giving them a product or a service when you could give them the gospel. Or two, God has given you a platform and a business for himself and you're using it for yourself. Do you think it's going to be ultimately fulfilling? It won't be. Do you think you'll be pleased in eternity with how you live for Christ when you didn't live for him? Owners, top dog managers, I get it. Your business partners, your stockholders, maybe even your spouse may not like a new direction in your work when you say we're going to pursue Christ in this way. When you love Christ and you know that he saved you, that's okay. Be an ambassador for Christ. Steward your life well and give away freely what no business can sell. You have Christ to give. Do you live like Christ and honor Christ before all things as a company owner? If not as an owner, it's because you don't want to. You should really grapple with that. If you own the company and it doesn't promote Christ, then that's because you don't want it to. Maybe as an owner, you can consider for me, if Jesus 
went to work for me tomorrow, what changes would he make? If nothing, awesome. I'm proud of you. And there's some of you I think that's true of. Others of you? Why would you not make those changes? Grapple through that. How would Jesus lead my business? How would Jesus leverage my business for his glory? And friends, whatever changes you need to make, do it. Because your master in heaven is there watching. If your business tanks because you're following Christ the way he desires, then don't worry. Because you still have an inheritance waiting on you in heaven. You have the future inheritance as your reward. Your business is a stewardship. You have a master. Are you pleasing him? You have another major stewardship, and that stewardship goes way beyond money, way beyond the brick and mortar of your business, way beyond inventory or the next project on your client list or the chart of accounts or whatever. You're stewarding lives as an employer. You steward employees. You steward God's creation. Don't forget your employees are moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas. They're citizens. Much of their life is at your work, but they have a life outside of your work. How are you affecting them for the benefit of their life outside of their work? If you're keeping them from finding ways to pursue Christ in work, that's, that's a problem. But even beyond that, you can help those of your employees who don't know Christ. How are you modeling the beauty of Christ before your employees? If your employees aren't often confronted with the beauty of Christ in your life from your mouth, from your company communication, from a company email, why? Who's stopping you? It's a choice to make your business not about Christ if your business is not about Christ. Don't change your product. Don't change your service, but make it about Christ. View your employees as your flock to shepherd. God has entrusted them to you. Care for them. Love them. Some of them need him to save them. Are you pointing them to him or are you just giving them a paycheck? Because you don't want to rock the boat. Some of them need your help to live for him. Are you helping them live for him? Are you modeling for them what living for him looks like? It's an incredible stewardship that owners and managers have to live for Christ in front of a watching world and to care for their employees in the way that makes God desirable in a way that honors Christ. Fifth, living with divine ethics means you provide like God does. Paul makes a very pointed effort to show that the masters were to be active in caring for those in their charge. Company owners, managers should be active in treating their employees well. Often this is most easily seen in the paycheck. Should you offer time off, health care, retirement, matching, are commissions evil? You know, like there's a lot of freedom in all of those. But there is no freedom in how the Lord should view your treatment of your employees. Justly and fairly. So often this comes down to the paycheck. How much should you pay as a business owner? Should you hold the bottom line as tight as possible so you can give as much to the Lord as you can? Or should you be generous with your employees? Well, I don't think there's any way to extrapolate some sort of formula or percentage, but we can surely draw some paradigmatic conclusions. First, God is always more generous than we know. How do we provide like God? He's always more generous than we know. Every breath is proof of God's gracious love for rebellious creation. 
Model God through a generous approach to business. When is God stingy with himself toward us? Never. Definitely not in salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy, with a great love with which he loved us. Or Isaiah 55, verse 7, to the wicked, God says, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God abundantly pardons. How about Jonah's frustration with God? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Remember why Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites because Jonah knew the Ninevites were evil and terrible. And he says, I'm not going there because I know what God's going to do. He's going he's to abundantly care for them and love them and save them. Give them rich mercy and grace and pardon. Who should employees learn of the generous nature of God from? Christian business owners, Christian managers. Their own manager, who isn't stingy because they've been saved by God, will be a tool that God uses to help them understand himself. Jesus' words are quoted by Paul, Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe it? Too many business owners confine that to the church but you spend most of your life in your business. Christian business owners shouldn't just pay. That's a waste of money. You should pay well with a purpose to promote the goodness and generosity of God. Second, God gives riches to be given. If you're a business owner raking it in, why? So that you can be generous. Consider the example of, of the Philippians. Philippians chapter four, you can read it. Paul commended them for their for their what? For their wisdom in only giving exactly what was required. No. For their generous giving. Abundance is God's love language. First Timothy 6, 17 to 19, God tells the rich, don't be haughty. Don't put your hope in riches. Put your hope in God and use your riches for good works and be generous and be ready to share. Store your treasures in heaven, not in an account. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. That's my translation. Friend, God gives riches to be given for all of us. I get it. Your wealth is not liquid. It's tied up in a business and investments and assets. Okay. But the principle remains. Be generous, ready to share. Use your business as an opportunity to glorify the Lord in that way. And what's the result? Treasure and reward in heaven. Where do you want it? On earth or forever in heaven? Third, being stingy, it's against God's heart. But being zealous for goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it reminds us that we're to honor the Lord with our wealth. Honor the Lord with our wealth. We're not called to build it bigger. We're not called to save it. We're not called to be wise with it, but to honor the Lord with it. That's the priority. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deeds. Proverbs 19, 17, you want to know the best business plan ever? Lend to God. He's going to help. He's going to pay it back. He's good for it. If it hurts your business a bit to pay competitive and generous rates, trust God for it. He's good for it. If it hurts your business, guess what? You have a master in heaven. He knows. He knows your heart. Consider Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You know this is the fruit of the Spirit, not a business model. But listen up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you know what goodness is? Goodness is only a word that's used four times in the New Testament by Paul. Timothy George says goodness conveys the idea of benevolence and generosity towards someone with a need. Goodness is going the second mile with magnanimity magnanimity when it's not required. That's goodness. You want to set yourself apart as a Christian business owner? Don't be stingy. Exercise the fruit of the Spirit and offer goodness in the form of healthy pay. There are many practical reasons not to skimp on the paycheck, but they don't really matter. This is God's heart, to be generous. That, that matters. You can't keep employees with the minimum pay. It's not a good business strategy. I mean, if you, if you pay for participation trophy employers, you're not going to get first-rate work. Yeah? I mean, just be wise. But the bottom line for an employer, business owner, a manager, where your money is, there's your treasure. So where's your money? Is it in the souls of people you employ? Or the advancement of the gospel and the good, good of these people? How can you treasure that? If you don't, you put your money there. Finally, in verse 1, we see masters are to be motivated by their divine accountability. Masters, treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. For all of us, there is divine accountability for how we live. Judgment is coming, absolutely, but I don't think that should be our focus. More than that, don't we daily, hourly, moment by moment, moment want to live for our king? What you're doing is not lost on God. The mundane of life is magnificent in the eternal focus of God's glory. We want to lead and live and love in all the ways that pleases our heavenly master because he's always watching us. Not as an evil taskmaster, but as a loving, kind God. Jesus has already died on our behalf to show us his love for us. He's saved us from evil and sin and death and given us life to live for him. Do you? where you spend most of your life. The world will judge you by accounts and acquisitions and growth and expansion and new stores, new jobs, bigger, better, always, which may be best. Christ will judge you way more simply, but way more comprehensively. Do you daily deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him? What's it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? May we always seek to live under the authority and for the glory of our master in heaven, the only king who loved his people enough to die for them, that he might give them life, that we might use it for him, especially in our work, trusting him to bring glory to our grind. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the goodness of your wisdom to see the grace that you offer to us in this life, to live all of it for your glory. Help us to see the beauty of what you've given us and our callings. No matter what we do, we know who we do it for. And because of that, we can labor and work heartily, fearing you, living for you. Help us to do just that. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you